Well, have uh, a seat. Uh, I made the, the half mistake of uh, putting a mint in my mouth because I was worried about coughing, and now I'm thinking I'm probably going to choke in about five minutes. And if I do, you know, it's got the hole in the middle, so don't worry about it. I'll, I'll make it. Uh, I just, I, I'm, I'm forecasting that. Uh, many years ago, uh, we, I can't remember if this was just a year after Ashley and I got married or a year before we got married. Maybe you can help me out here in a second on, on where this falls in the timeline. But needless to say, I'm kind of new to her side of the family. Uh, we are at a funeral of her great aunt. Her great aunt lived a long and fruitful life. It was, it was uh, one of those kind of funerals that you, you knew was coming for a while. There wasn't a lot of uh, surprise in it. And then at the funeral, at the, at the viewing, um, there's, all the families are meeting and they're having conversations. So if you've been in a situation like this, maybe you can rewind yourself to, to that moment. You're, you're uh, at, at, a, at a wake and uh, people are kind of, they're segmented. So it's definitely like a clear line division between ages. If you are maybe 60 plus, you would be in this one group of people. And if you're under 60, the young kids, uh, we are over here. Uh, and I'm the new person in the family. And I don't, I'm not good at small talk. I don't know if you've noticed that about me in the hallways. I'm not awesome at small talk. I tend to, I tend to be awkward. Anybody ever put their foot in their mouth? Like you just, you're trying not to, you're thinking, whatever you do, don't put your foot in your mouth. And you know, the next thing you say is going to be that. And that's what happened at this funeral. We're, we're there and all, all of us young people, we, we are talking and just sharing stories, just doing our best to you know, hear from each other. Someone was uh, in high school and she was telling the story. I believe she was a senior in high school. She was, she was telling about her week and she said this week was so weird that one of her good friends, um, she just was walking down the hallway she turned white as a ghost and she just collapsed. And we just, th- we, th- we thought she was dead. We were so scared for her. We prayed for her. We went and got a teacher. We got a nurse. Like think of how stressful that would be. And like, I'm into this story, you know, like I'm, I'm hearing everything about it. And, uh, she said, she said, and it turns out, you know, she, she just had a seizure, uh, and the nurse already knew about it, that she had a condition. And, uh, and so they went and got her medicine. And they, they took her by ambulance and she left. And so they're really worried about her. But the next day it was okay because she came back to school and she looked great. And that's where my brain just couldn't, like the filter didn't kick in because, because she said she, she looked dead. And then like the next sentence later, she's like, well, she looked, she looked great. And I looked at her and I said, and I think right when I said this, like the house music died. And so now I'm screaming and I said, well, of course she looked great. Anything looks better than dead. And the entire room turns and looks at me because that's the only line that they heard. It was the most embarrassing. I wanted to crawl under the table and I wanted to hide, you know. Uh, I felt so bad. Now, now the truth, though, is, is that if they were there for the front of the story, they would be in agreement, like, praise God, like, the girl was okay. But because they weren't there for the first of the story, they only heard the end of the story, it was all taken out of context, and now I'm trying to backpedal. Um, very often, when we enter a story somewhere in the middle, we get things either out of context. It's a true sentence, what I said. Uh, and what they heard, I actually came out of my mouth, but out of context, it didn't make as much sense. And that's where all the, like, imagine the looks like, I just don't think that marriage is going to work out. It's probably what they were thinking, you know, like they're like, I don't know about that guy. Uh, well, you know what? We've been married for a while now. So, you know, jokes on y'all. Uh, <laughs> no, nobody said those things. Uh, but when we enter a story halfway through it and we get all of the facts of the middle, you can know the middle really well. But if you don't know the first things, 
Um, you may get some things out of context. You may not fully understand what's going on. And so what we began last week is a series called First Things First. And we're looking at the book of Genesis because we as Christians, wherever you came into Christianity, uh, uh, and some of you may not have come into Christianity yet. Maybe some of you are just kind of putting your toe in the water and testing it out. You're coming in in the middle and you're hearing all the things that are in the middle. But, but in order for us to make really good sense of it all, we need to know the first things. And so we're trying to do that with Genesis. We're trying to just open up the first few chapters of Genesis, and we're going to learn it. We're going to spend six weeks total. We're on week two. Uh, and so if you want to follow along in your Bible, I invite you to. It's the only way to make sure I'm not making these things up. Uh, and it's also super easy to find Genesis because it's the first book of the Bible. So if you turn to page one, uh, you're probably there. If not, we're on page two. Okay. So that's, that's where we'll be. Last week, we looked at the six days of creation, the seventh day being the day of rest. So the first seven days, and we looked at how God created all things. He created light, let there be light, and it just was. And, and in the story, what we see is that God is a God who runs towards chaos, finds things that don't make sense, finds things that have no pattern and really no solution yet as an example, and through his own creativity turns chaos into order. And every day he finished, he said, it is good. He does a thing, and he says it's good. He, he creates animals. He says it's good. He creates plants. He says it's good. And then at the end, on day six, he creates mankind, and he says it is, it is very good. And so we see this God who takes things and makes chaos into order, and when he does it, he stands back, and he's pleased with what he's done. And we left last week, like when God finished with the creation, it was very good. Now, some of you are like, yes. Very good. I got it and I'm satisfied. But some of you left dissatisfied last week because you're like, that's great. If God finished creation and it was very good, then why is it right now that it's not very good? What happened between that day six, day seven piece of creation where it was very good and today where marriages are falling apart, I can't get along with my coworker, I'm having arguments and there's all this pain and struggle and death. It was very good there, but something happened. Did God make a mistake? Did it get broken in some way? Why is it that we are in this situation that we're in right now? What we're going to look at today is the answer to that question. So if, if God is the source of all things good, where does evil come from? Where does this brokenness that we live and swim and breathe in come from? from, and it's right at the beginning of Genesis. So the first thing is that God creates order. The second thing is our purpose in it is that we are called, as, as humans, we're called to have dominion over all of creation. We are image bearers of God. We are his representatives in this world. What that should mean, if, if everything works the way it should, what that should mean is that you and I enter worlds and places that have chaos, and we're like, you know what? There's a problem. I'm going to bring order. And sometimes we do. When, when we go to work and there's just this big mountain of a problem and it is your responsibility to solve it and you do the hard work of solving it and your boss comes to you later and says, hey, I just want you to know you did a great job. Wait, like you really, like you, you dug your teeth into that. You, you did great. You were living up to your image bearing nature of God. You saw chaos and you brought order. But sometimes you're like me and you put your foot in your mouth and what was just a perfectly nice funeral ends up being a lot of chaos because, because I just, the filter didn't work that day. Or maybe I lost my temper or maybe I was just feeling a little selfish that day and now I have to deal with all the fallout of my mistakes. If we're honest, a lot of times, and Paul would say this, a lot of times, even though we know good and we don't want evil, we find ourselves doing the things that we hate and we can't figure out how to do the things that we want to do. Why is that true? That's what we want to look at today. 
So uh, we have a lot of work, a lot of ground that we're going to try to cover. I'm going to begin in Genesis chapter 2 if you want to find your way there. And what's happened, uh, the author does this very intentionally, uh, that Genesis chapter 1 into the first few verses of 2 are kind of a, like a big macro look at creation. And then in chapter two, where we're at right now, he kind of like zeroes in and does like a magnifying glass. So the time kind of rewinds a little bit and then he zeroes in because in, at the end of chapter one, God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them like Adam and Eve are made, right? And then chapter two, what we're going to see is that like we're going to zoom in like, okay, what was the sequence of events? Like God created Adam first and then, and then Eve. So, so we're kind of uh, uh, magnifying that last day of creation. Genesis chapter 2, verse 5. Let's, let's begin there. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You know that phrase that's sometimes said at funerals, from dust to dust, and you'll return to dust? It's because in the created order, God just like, he had already created all the land, and now he goes and he gets some dust, and he's like, I'm going to make a human out of that. And then he breathes life into the nostrils, and the man became a living creature. Verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The image here, this was kind of mind-boggling as I studied it. I always thought that like, okay, he just created a garden and then like Adam was made there. But the image here is that, that Adam is made outside of the garden, right? And then over here on the other side of the land in the east, he, uh, in the east of Eden, the east side of Eden, you know, so you have like west side and east side. There's, there's a whole, uh, you know, uh, musical gang thing happening here. Uh, and, and Adam was made on the west side of Eden in the wilderness kind of area. But at the same time, God is creating a garden on the east side. And then when he's finished with this garden, making it perfect and beautiful, just right for Adam, he takes Adam and he places him in the garden. And it says, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Excuse me. And so what we see is that, that God has, has created man and then he created the perfect space for man in this garden. The garden, that, we call it the Garden of Eden. In this garden is every plant that is good to look at, every plant that is good for food, every, everything that you could want in this garden, God has made it perfectly set up for Adam. What we should hear in this is that God knows what Adam needs before Adam is even aware of what he could possibly need. On the first day of his creation, God knew like, these are the plants that are going to be pleasing to Adam's eyes. These are the, the plants that are going to be good and nutritious for Adam. I'm going to, I'm going to provide everything that he needs. As a Christian now, when, when you are considering, like, what should I pray for? What do I need? And maybe the Lord's Prayer pops in your head, and you say the, in the Lord's Prayer the line, give me this day my daily bread. It is to trust God the Father that he knows what you need beyond what you want or beyond even what you're capable of knowing about yourself. That, that to pray that prayer, give me this day my daily bread, is to trust that, that God is... He's there, and he knows, and he's going to provide for you. And so now Adam is in the garden. Uh, he is, uh, you know, he's got every plant that he could want. Let's keep going, because I want to get to chapter 3 pretty fast. Let's go down to verse 15. 
It says, and the, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. His, he, he has a job. Like, it's a perfect garden, but hey, Adam, I want you to, to make sure that all the plants are taken care of. And, you know, like, if you want that plant on that side of the garden, you go ahead and take care of it. Just work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, that's got to be really, really confusing. It's, it's, it's Adam's first day of life, and there's a threat. Like, if you, if you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. And he's like, I'm going to what? I mean, in Adam's head, it may as well have been uh, just gibberish. Uh, on that day, you're going to... Blah, blah, blah. Oh, I don't want to... Blah, blah, blah. That sounds terrible. I don't, I don't want to die. In this garden, and you probably know this story from, uh, if nothing else, like Looney Tunes kind of covers some, some Garden of Eden stuff, that there's a garden... And Adam has free reign to do anything he wants. You know, some of us, when we think about God, we think about rules, we think about restrictions, we think about like all the things that he doesn't want you to do, you know, all the the fun things. And it turns out that God in his created order gave Adam 99.9% freedom to do anything he can imagine with the one restriction, don't eat of that tree. Because if you eat of that tree, there's a consequence and you're going to die. You're going to Taste of death. And so if you have children, you know what that looks like, right? <laughs> okay, you can go anywhere you want in the playground, but don't go out the gate. Where's that kid going to be in 30 seconds? Yeah, at the gate. Okay, so, so we kind of we know some foreshadowing about what's going to happen next. Um, so far, uh, all of this has been to Adam and Eve or just Adam? Anybody? Just Adam. And so what we see is that God is giving commands to Adam because Eve hasn't even been formed yet. We'll, we'll continue uh, down right here in uh, verse uh, 18. It says this, Then the Lord God said, it is not good. This is the first time that God said something is not good. Remember, every day of creation, it is good. He finishes it, it is good. He finishes creating Adam and Eve, it is very good. But between those days, when we zero in on it, the author is saying, like, there's this moment where God says, this isn't good. It's not good that man should be alone. It says, I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, uh, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's, uh, that, that was its name. What a, what a fun job that was. I, like Adam has nothing to base it on. He's like, antelope. I got that one. Yeah. He's like, ah, that's a, that's a monkey. No, I've already used monkey. That's ah, a chimpanzee. Ha <laughs> ha. So then he starts like differing it up. And like he has a job. Part of his job in ruling and having dominion is not that God is saying, these are the things that you're going to call them. It is go out into the world and like name it whatever you want. Create whatever order it is. Anybody uh, remember in college or high school having to go through biology and you had all those Latin names of all the animals and the genuses and the fauna and all of those things? Uh, yeah, yeah, Adam, Adam named all those weird things, those, those things. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. 
Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We can kind of see in English like woman has the word man in it. Man. And so uh, the same is happening in Hebrew. He says, I shall call her Isha because she came out of Ish. Man is Ish. Isha, if you care about language. All the nerds are like, yes, give me more. But the rest of you, we can continue. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, that's a key key passage right here. Let's let's kind of unpack this real quick. Um, God says that it's not good for man to be alone. I wonder, you don't have to raise your hands, but I wonder if we just did a quick poll. Anybody in here ever go through a season of loneliness? And 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 uh, separation. You miss people. I, I know it's true that all of us have. Uh, we we all went through COVID together, and we were all like destined to be at home. And somewhere along the cabin fever, and then the COVID fever, and then just some other kind of fever. Somewhere in the loneliness, it's just like you feel it in your heart. Like it's not good for me to be alone. It's not good for me to be separated from people. It's not good for me to be isolated. Where does that come from? What if I told you that even before the fall, even before the first sin, before anything in this world was broken, part of your design as a human being was to be with other human beings because it's not good for you to be alone. It's not good for you to be isolated. It's not good for you to have, have, have a, 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 like a solo life without, without uh, uh, cooperation with other people. You know, the scripture is full all the way from beginning to end. As iron sharpens iron, we need each other. Fight for the fellowship. Have, have communion with one another. Don't let enmity come between you. Don't let anger and strife come between you. Don't let gossip come between you. Those are all part of the nature that is trying to separate this very basic truth about us, is that we need each other, and we should be fighting for each other. And so God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for you to be alone, and creates for him a spouse, a mate, Eve. And when, when uh, I heard a comedian say this, he's having to name all the animals, and when he looks at Eve, he is so overwhelmed with her beauty. He's like, whoa, man. And that's how she got her name, woman, whoa, man. The comedian was so much better at it than I was. I didn't write the joke. I just tell them. Uh, and it says in verse 25, and the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In this state, in this moment, they see each other fully for what they are. This is not just a statement of nudity. It is a statement of fully exposed, no secrets, fully known. They have dignity with one another. They fully know each other's uh, uh, character and traits and personality, and there's trust. There's, there's, there's embedded trust with each other because the, the break has not yet happened. They're, they're naked and not ashamed. But here's where things get wrong, because like I said at the beginning, God's been saying it was very good, but why is it not so good now? Why do we have brokenness? Well, chapter 3 begins this. At the top of chapter 3, if you have your Bible, you probably have the phrase called the fall, right? You see that? The fall. That sounds, that sounds ominous, doesn't it? The fall from what? Adam was on a step stool trying to reach for the fruit, and he tripped, and he fell, right? No, no, it's, it's not that. The image of, quote, the fall is that mankind, you and I, uh, we were supposed to be God's royalty, having dominion over all of his creation. This is the fall from our royal position that God placed us in into a lesser state, into a less dignified state. How did we fall from that position? It says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. There's a snake. Anybody here hate snakes? 
Turns out that's genetic from the beginning, right? The snakes, you can't trust them. If, someone, if, so, if someone's kind of smarmy at work and they're talking about you behind your back, what do, what do we might say if we were less godly? We say, oh, they're just a snake in the grass, right? Like Nobody's ever like, oh, man, that's so snaky of you. That's so kind. Like, snake is never used as a kind uh, statement about someone. The, the word there that says crafty, uh, that the snake, the serpent, was more crafty than anything, that is, a, that is a neutral word. In this statement, it is neither evil nor good yet. It's all in how the snake uses it. Jesus would later, later use this. I, I made a note right here in Matthew 10, verse 16, that we are to be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. That's, that's out of the mouth of, of Jesus. He uses the same word. He's like, you guys should be as wise and crafty as that first serpent, but innocent as doves. So that, that this, this idea of just being wise and knowing how to, to work a room, work a situation, is not evil by itself. It's just how you use it. So you have this, this snaky snake. Uh, and <laughs> I just had this image. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a slithery little snake. Anyway, uh, uh, and he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Uh, was Eve there when God said that? No. And so the only way Eve could have gotten this is if Adam told her. Adam had a responsibility, like, let me tell you about our God, and let me tell you some of the things he's already said, which so far has just been the one thing, uh, don't eat of the tree. The serpent begins by asking uh, the woman, she's like, hey, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? There's a little bit of a twist in, in the way it's asked, but we'll continue. So then the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She doesn't name it. She just, maybe she just points at it. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So she remembers the consequence. She knows something about that tree over there. But then she adds the line, lest you touch it. Uh, I wonder if Adam added that line. You know, sometimes as parents, we're like, you're not allowed to play in the road. So the rule is you don't cross the sidewalk. Is the sidewalk dangerous? Usually no. I mean, I've seen some of you drive, but uh, most of the time the sidewalk is safe. Uh, but but, but uh, we as parents, we sometimes we elevate the, the line. So maybe Adam, uh, maybe Adam uh, said, hey, don't even touch that tree because God said if you eat it of it, you'll die. And so she internalized that as, you know, I'm not supposed to touch it. I'm not supposed to, you know, uh, even, even want it. Uh, I might die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, now first it's, what did, did God really say the way that you think he said it? And then she, then she answers. And now he's now questioning the actual consequences of what's going to happen. You're not going to die. God knows, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent's promise to Eve is, uh, uh, you know, one, the consequence isn't even real. Two, God's character, you know, he's, he's really kind of holding back some good stuff from you right? He, he, he doesn't want your eyes to be open because God knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you're going to know good and evil. That's why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let me tell you something. The word knowledge, uh, there are two kind of ways that it's used and it's used one of the two ways right here. The way that it's not used is the kind of knowledge that you have in school when you have a math test or a spelling list and you've studied it and you've taken the knowledge and you've put it in your head, and you're like, I'm going to hold on to that knowledge all the way to the test. That is like an analytical knowledge. You've studied a thing, and now you know it. Or you've logically come to a conclusion. You reasoned your way to it. That's not this knowledge. What, what Adam and Eve don't know yet is that there's another kind of knowledge. There's an experiential knowledge. Anybody here go to the School of Hard Knocks? 
right? And you, you grew up and you made some mistakes. And while you wish you didn't make the mistakes, you've learned a lot from those mistakes. And now you're a better person because you've learned from those mistakes. Eve doesn't know that there is a school of hard knocks. She doesn't know what the serpent knows. And that is if you taste of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's not analytical knowledge. You experientially have knowledge of what evil is. She's going to experience evil, and you'll be like God. Uh, she knows, Eve probably knows, that she's an image bearer of God. And so to be like God sounds like a really good thing. I'm going to represent God the best by being smarter than what he asked me to be. And so the woman, verse 6, so when the woman, what does she do with it? She saw that the tree was good for food. She's just staring at it. She's like, mm, ooh, that looks good. Anybody here have a thing that you know God is like, don't do that? And you're like, you're just sitting there looking at it from across the room. You're like, mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that looks like a lot of fun right there. I could say that to Sally, and I could put her in her place right now. Ooh, it would feel so good to tell her what she needs to hear. Somebody's got to say it, right? Somebody's got to do it. She's just looking at the food, and she's like, oh, that, that looks good for food. And, and that it was a delight to the eyes. Look how cute it is. If God didn't want me to have it, he wouldn't have made it look so cute, right? It looks so, like it's a little petite. Like what? Is it an apple? Nobody knows. Some people think it's a fig. Who knows? But it's just like winking at her. I bet when she looked at it, like the sun hit it at just the right way and a little sparkle. Like, oh, it's all glittery. Mm, yeah, that looks good. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She started thinking about it. She's like, you know what? I do want to be smarter than I am. I want to know more than I have. I want to experience this. That, I, I think God might be holding something back from me. And so what does she do? She took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. The whole time he's just sitting there like, mm, yeah, it is sparkly. Yeah, okay. And then they both ate of it. Verse 7, then the eyes of both were open. Here's an interesting thing about the serpent. He promised her, God knows that if you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened. She's like, I didn't know my eyes were closed. Oh, okay. And then she took the fruit, and the first thing that happens, Scripture says their eyes were opened. It wasn't a lie. It just was a truth with a consequence that she had not yet considered yet. Her eyes were, in fact, open, and they knew that they were naked, and so they did the only thing that they could uh, to fix that, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, we, we've all seen like the, you know, the little children's books, the little children's Bibles with the fig leaves, and we think, oh, well, you know, that's adequate clothing. It's not adequate clothing. Have you ever had a fig leaf touch you? It's all itchy. It, it, it's going to, it, it, like as soon as you pull it off the tree, it starts fading right away. It is immediately in insufficient clothing, and they're just doing the best that they can with what they have to hide the shame that they were never meant to have. Because why? Because the serpent didn't fully lie to her. The serpent said, your eyes are going to be open. And the moment that their eyes were open, shame enters. They felt guilt. They felt inadequate. This is the first moment in creation where any human felt like they weren't enough. They weren't enough to stand before God. They weren't enough to stand before each other. You see, what's interesting to me is that this happened an uh, un untold number of years ago, thousands of years ago. If you're young earth, this is 6,000 years ago. If you're old earth, you know, like 10, 15,000. Like, it it's a long time ago. It wasn't last week, right? This is old stuff. You know what I'm saying? And, and yet the human condition is so palpable right here because I have felt these feelings, and I bet you have as well, to be standing in front of another human and feel inadequate. To be standing in front of your God like God doesn't know you and know your weaknesses and think, I'm inadequate for God. I am, I am 100% going to run out of time, so let me hurry. And they heard, verse 8, and it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I lived in a house uh, growing up that was on piers, and when people would walk through the house, 
you could hear their footsteps. Anybody else? You lived in a house or had a house like that? And after a while, you learn the sound of different people's footsteps. I could tell you who was in my house. I could tell you when like people came from out of town just based on the boom, boom, boom. They have been spending so much time with God. They heard the footsteps in the garden and Adam didn't think, oh, it's that chimpanzee I named last week. He knew exactly who it was because he's been so close to God this entire time. Adam and Eve have been so close to God this entire time that when they hear his footsteps in the garden, they're like, that's God. Like, oh God, it's God. And what do we do? Every time they saw God before, they would probably run to him. Oh, God's here again. It's the time that he comes. Here he comes. Well, let's go talk to him. Let's go see. And yet shame and guilt and fear and inadequacy have now entered them. The death has already happened. Did you notice that God promised them that they would die when they ate the fruit? And in their head, they probably thought croak over. Adam was probably sitting back like, Eve, you, you know, I know God can make another one of you. So you go ahead and she eats it, right? And he, she's like, I feel fine. I don't, I don't know. He's like, sweet, give me some of that. Like, it's, I'm not going to die. But they did die. They had a different kind of death than they expected. They had a spiritual death. Their relationship with God was broken and fractured that day. And it says what they did, they hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees. Don't we do that? When we, when we feel shame and inadequate, instead of running to God for forgiveness, instead of running to him and telling him the mistake that we've made, I, I'll just speak for myself, I hide. My first instinct is to hide that mistake. And Adam and Eve taught me how to. This is where I learned it from. I got it genetically from my great, great grandpappy. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? As if, as if God doesn't know, right? Like God created all the trees that you're hiding behind. What in the world could you possibly hide behind, right? Where are you? This is an invitation, not for, for Adam to play hide and go seek. This is an invitation for Adam to own it. God, I've made a mistake. I'm, I'm hurt. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam says, the man said, the woman whom you gave me will be, uh, to, to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree. It's kind of your fault, God. Like you gave me this one and she gave it to me. So it's her fault. And yeah, I ate it. I did. And so he kind of owns it at the end. And so the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this that you've done? Like what, what part of this do you want to own? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And she doesn't like pass the buck. She doesn't say Adam didn't stop me. She doesn't say, God, he made a mistake. But she's like, yeah, I got tricked, God. And yeah, I ate it. I ate it too. It's a really heartbreaking story of this perfect creation that God has made. And that for just the smallest, briefest time, it was very good. And then death entered because, because of mistakes were made. And the relationship was, was broken. It seems to me that there's a pattern that I want to kind of highlight right here in the last few minutes that we have, is that the image bearers of God, us, um, we, we want to represent good. That is, that is our nature, to represent good. We were supposed to have dominion over this world, and we're going to represent all the good things that God wants that are good. The problem is, is that we're not clear anymore on what good is. I'm, they're, they're in, in the history of humankind, there's almost no one who's like, I want to do evil for evil's sake. You can think of the worst people that you want. Think of, think of Hitler. Hitler thought he was doing good. Like if you ask him, like, hey, Hitler, are you doing good or evil? It's like, I'm doing good. Yet today we look at him like, that is quintessential evil. People, even mean people, even jerks, the jerks in your life, they believe that they're doing good because they want to represent good. 
We want to cultivate a full and pleasant life, to have dominion over this world. We want to, we want to put people where they belong. We want to put, and that's as leaders, we want to, we want to have good gardens where, where we thrive. The problem is that we can't all agree on what is the best way to put this world in order. And we're, we're, we want to turn chaos into order because we're like God in that way. We hate when there's a problem. We think that we have the solutions we run to it. But then the pattern of the serpent, we see it both, both in, in Scripture with, the, with Satan the rest of the way, but also in our flesh. Like we have, we have a little bit of a serpent nature in us as well. Uh, uh, Paul will later say that we're to crucify the works of the flesh. That, that the serpent wants to challenge the image bearers of God. Are you sure that he, he wants you to represent him that way? Uh, the serpent questions God's clarity, character, and consequences. Every sin I've ever committed and you've ever committed began with a little bit of a rationalization. Like, ah, is it really that bad? Is it, are really the consequences going to be as bad as they say? To, maybe God doesn't know all the things that I know because I'm super smart. I've been alive for 37 years. Come on. Like, I know some things. Yet, yet we question God's character. We question the consequences of what's about to happen. And the end result, every time we've made this mistake, is that we've taken things that were good and had order, and we bring it back to chaos. We see breaks in our relationships. We see breaks in our friends. We see breaks in marriages. We, the death is like saturating our culture. But then the third pattern we see is that God continues uh, his habits. Uh, he, he is unchanging in his character. He seeks and confronts sin. He, he goes to Adam and says, where are you? He went and sought him out while Adam is hiding and trying to conceal that. And he provides a sufficient covering. I didn't read it, but uh, at the end, we see that, that God kind of throws away the fig leaves and he creates loincloths out of animal skins. He provides them something that will actually cover them. In the same way, we trust as Christians, we trust that Jesus is providing a covering for us that is more sufficient than our covering. Our covering is that we excuse our bad behaviors, we try to rationalize it, we try to convince other people that our way was right, and you shouldn't have judgment on me, right? Uh, and God says, no, instead confess your sins to Jesus and trust that his covering is enough. I want to read uh, two more passages, if, if you'll bear with me. Uh, Romans 5, Paul picks up on this Adam idea. Uh, Romans 5, uh, verses 15 through 17. Maybe make a note of it, but we'll have it on the screen right here. And he's talking about Adam, and he's talking about all the sin and death that came from Adam. But he says this about Jesus and said, he said, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that, that, uh, of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus. Here's, here's what Paul says. He looks at all of the creation. He sees the Adam and Eve story, and he thinks about what Christ has accomplished. And he says, you know what we have? We have a problem because our father, Adam, had a problem. What we need is a new Adam, and it turns out that Jesus is a better Adam. He provides righteousness where, where Adam provided condemnation. 
If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, what we have learned from Scripture isn't that the old nature is completely wiped away, but a new nature is alive in you. Paul will say that. He'll say, like, I do the things that I hate, and I hate the things that I do, but, but he's fighting in him to, to choose righteousness and holiness. You, if you're alive in Christ, it is, it is the beginning of the restoration of the death that came from Adam and Eve. We're experiencing that. There were a couple of other verses. Uh, I'll just uh, tell you, look it up later. Romans 16, 20. Uh, the promise that, that God made to the serpent is answered in Romans 16, 20. But let me close with this. Why, why do we have evil? Why do we have pain? Why is there chaos in this world? If we're followers of Jesus, isn't our life supposed to be perfect? No, Jesus says, I promise you, you're going to have tribulation in this world. But I have overcome the world. Jesus, the new Adam, has overcome the world. Pain, death, and chaos exist because we've all tasted evil and experientially know it. We don't just have a head knowledge of evil, but we've all participated in it, and it's a part of our DNA. It is in our character, and we see the consequences of it in our relationships and and, and, and around us when things break. But just like our character goes all the way back to the beginning, we can also see God's character all the way back to the beginning. God's character is unchanging and unwavering. And from the beginning of mankind, he has continued his mission of covering our shame and and restoring our peace. You know what would have been so much easier for God to do on day seven when Adam and Eve sinned or whatever day it was? It might have been 40 days later. Who knows? It would have been so much easier to be like, well, that experiment failed. I'm done. And yet God instead begins this pattern where he lets mankind see the consequences of their sin. Scripture from Genesis 3 all the way to the end is this grand experiment. Can man pull himself out of the death that he put himself into? And the answer has been no, generation after generation after generation. The only people who have found a way out of the death that we put ourselves in are those who put their trust in God, those who have put their trust in Jesus. And so if I can just close by giving you this one just exhortation. If you do not yet have a trust in Jesus that has brought you out of death into life, today would be a great day to do that. He is the only covering that is sufficient enough for the shame and guilt that I brought upon myself. And he's the only covering sufficient enough for the shame and guilt that you brought against yourself. And the truth is he doesn't need you to work for it. He doesn't need you to earn it. He doesn't need you to do anything to prove that you're good enough to get the covering. God didn't wait for Adam and Eve to pull themselves out of it before he covered them. He covered them because it was a gift and it was his grace all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. If you walked in here with a view of God that he's angry at you, that he hates you, that he just wants to ruin all the fun in your life, you are missing out on the God of the very good who has ordered Adam and Eve and us to have all of this freedom, to do amazing and beautiful things, to have dominion in our order, in our garden that we're in. And yet we're wrestling against the evil and wickedness of others and in ourselves. His restrictions, quote, restrictions, are really just him pointing us to the true sources of joy. They're not to ruin your joy. And he loves you, and he'll provide a covering for you. Let me pray uh, for us, and then uh, we will watch the cue together. Father, uh, this morning we come to you, and we thank you for the, the preservation of the story. Um, it doesn't make sense, uh, Lord, that, that an author that long ago would make up a story that hits so true to our nature today. But Father, um, I believe it's because it's a true story. I believe that, that in it, we see ourselves, but also in it, we see your grace. We see your truth. Uh, Father, we need your covering. We cannot uh, compensate for the death that's in us. 
uh, but we can uh, we can find life in you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the covering that that He offers us. May we walk with our heads up, with a good relationship with you, Father. When when we fail you, when we sin, when we when we have shame, Lord, teach us to run to you and not to hide from you. Teach us to run to the source of our hope, um, time and time again. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.